0: you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, it's not just what you search in Google that gets you the right results, it's how you search it, plus the biology of what makes people beautiful and attractive.
1: Men are attracted to skin, so the more skin a woman shows, the more attention she might get. Women might not even be doing it on purpose. Just when they wear the little shorter skirts, they get more attention and that's reinforcing even outside of their conscious awareness.
0: Also how employers choose which candidate gets the job is different than you think. And small inventions that change the world in big ways,
2: like frozen TV dinners. They saved an enormous amount of time. Really educated women in the 60s were spending literally hours a day putting food on the table for their families. Once that process was sped up, then they could go out and they could earn a living and, and of course, that gave them economic independence. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire
0: someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you... Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Here's something I bet you've wondered about. When you type in a search query into Google, you've probably wondered, well, does does the order of the words matter? Do all the words matter? Can I leave some words out? Does... Spelling matter? Well, it turns out that some things matter and some things don't matter. For example, every word does matter. You might think that if you leave out a or the in your search that that has no impact, but it does. And here's the perfect example. If you search for who, you get the World Health Organization as the first result in your search query. If you search a who you get Horton Hears a Who by Dr. Seuss as your first result, and if you search The Who, you get the rock band. So those little words do matter. Word order also matters. If you search Blue Sky, you get very different results than if you search Sky Blue. In general, if you use what you would consider the natural sequence of words for your search, you'll get better results. Now, capitalization and punctuation typically does not matter, and Google ignores uh, special characters. They have no impact on your search. And spelling does matter, but typically Google will help correct if you misspell. And that is something you should know. What makes a person beautiful? You know a beautiful person when you see one, but what is it that makes them so? And is a beautiful person here perceived as a beautiful person in other cultures? Can you deliberately and intentionally make yourself more beautiful? And perhaps more importantly, why is this important in the first place? Well, you're about to find out, I am joined by Rochelle Smith. Rochelle is an associate professor of psychology at Husson University in Maine and author of the book, The Biology of Beauty. Hi, hey, Rochelle, so start by giving me an understanding of what, as a researcher, what is beauty to you?
1: Beauty, it's, it's, it was fascinating to look at it more closely because what makes someone beautiful is this unique combination of these objective qualities that you can objectively look at a person, take measurements, kind of define objective beauty through symmetry or body proportions or facial features, but then there's a, the subjective piece where personality plays a role, common experiences, similarities, familiarity. Um, so we all have that, that individual that maybe we didn't even find that attractive when we first met. But then after you share some experiences, you get to know them. And they become more and more attractive in your eyes, even though their physical features didn't change.
0: So let's uh, let's talk about the physical features. And you talked about, you know, you can measure objective beauty. But is it really objective? In other words, if if I have a picture of a beautiful woman and I take it to the far reaches of a mountain range in Asia and show that picture to them, would they say the same thing?
1: They would. Uh, there's been cross-cultural research. Um, Dr. David Buss from the University of Boston, I believe, uh, he looked at 37 different cultures all over the world, different mating styles, different political systems, different... Um, and there's a lot of similarities. Like, there are consistent features that are found to be more attractive. And those features tend to correlate with health. Things that make you healthier tend to also make you more attractive. Things like? Things like uh, for women, waist-to-hip ratio. So having a narrow waist and wider hips, that's correlated with... Decreased chances of cancer and diabetes and heart disease. Like that feature, not only does it make you more reproductively successful, um, but it also correlates with all these other health aspects. So, no matter where you are in the world, that kind of hourglass feminine shape is considered attractive.
0: And wasn't there some something where somebody researched all the centerfolds in Playboy and they all had that ratio?
1: That's right. And so, even looking cross-culturally and across time, even though what's considered the most attractive might change from generation to generation, that waist-to-hip ratio tends to remain pretty consistent.
0: And I've also heard that, that symmetry is important, that, that, that in, in essence that a fairly plain symmetry, like not a lot of irregularities, is actually more attractive than somebody who's, who doesn't have that.
1: That's right. So um, in the research... The most attractive individuals are those who are the most average, and that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but if you take a bunch of different faces and kind of merge them into one, the face becomes more and more attractive than any of the the contributing parts, Um, and part of that is because it becomes more and more average, more and more symmetrical, kind of any deformities or discolorations get kind of washed out, and symmetry essentially gives you external evidence of underlying hormone functioning and developmental stability. So again, that symmetry is indicative of good health, strong genes, um, and a good developmental environment.
0: Within all that objectivity of beauty, though, there there is a lot of subjectivity because some people find taller people attractive. Some people may find shorter people attractive. Some people like Uh, mates who are heavier Uh, some people are attracted to people who are thinner so there is preference mixed in with that objective definition of beauty
1: that's an excellent observation and like all of this research looks at kind of averages like on average taller men are considered to be more attractive but depending on how tall the viewer is might determine how tall is the most attractive so kind of in comparison to your own physical traits it's personal and it is cultural, and I've, that's one of the most fascinating things I found in the research is that overall body size doesn't contribute that much to attractiveness. So particularly in westernized societies or in industrialized societies, like women are always seeking to be thinner and skinnier and more slender, and the body size itself doesn't matter as much. It's the proportions. It's the, the waist-to-hip ratio, the body shape. Um, so even men who prefer larger women, or cultures where they prefer larger women on average, the, the same waist-hip ratio remains the same.
0: Really? That's it's really interesting. So it's not the size. It's not size that matters as long as the ratio is right.
1: And men, men don't get off the hook. Like For men, it's shoulder-to-hip ratio that we tend to look at. So the wide shoulders to a narrow waist tends to be that inverted triangular shape is what we find attractive cross-culturally on men.
0: And this is just, this isn't because you look at a guy and say, well, I I really like that shoulder-to-hip ratio, that's just (laughs) spectacular. It's just, you look at it and you see beauty there, even though you don't know why you see beauty there.
1: That's exactly right. And uh, even if you, they've shown that if you have like the back profile of men, Uh, The ones with the higher shoulder-to-hip ratio, it just catches your attention more. You look longer. Your eyes go from the shoulder to the waist, and you spend more time looking at it. So it just innately captures your attention, not even at a conscious level, that it just captures your attention, you're drawn to it, you're likely to look longer, you're likely to engage. And none of this really gives an indication of relationship satisfaction or relationship health. It's just that initial attraction, that initial seeing something that you like.
0: Is it true, because I've always sensed this, I have no research to back it up, but is it true that physical attraction, the the way the person looks, just looks, is more important to men when looking at women than it is for women when looking at men?
1: That's exactly right. Uh, There's a lot of qualities in a relationship that far outweigh physical qualities, particularly for women. Women are much more interested in personality, in supportiveness, in connection and intimacy than in physical traits. And when women are asked to rate men for these different qualities, the pictures of the men, depending on whether the man's by himself, interacting with a child, interacting with a puppy, like those other cues lead women to rate the men to be more attractive than any of the actual physical features.
0: Yeah, I remember hearing some research where they showed women pictures of men and then they showed pictures of the same men in, like, I don't know, it was Burger King uniforms or something, and they rated them much <laughs> less attractive uh, when they were not wearing their suit and instead were wearing their fast food uniform.
1: That's right. That Women do tend to be attractive for signs of success, for signs of wealth, for signs of commitment, like someone who's going to be a good, solid partner. Um, which sounds stereotypical and it sounds a little shallow, but it's based on reality that these are qualities that lead to a more successful relationship down the line.
0: Clearly, in our culture and in many cultures, I assume, there is a lot of time, money, and effort put into being more beautiful, appearing more beautiful, optimizing the beautiful physical features that you have and downplaying the ones that aren't aren't so beautiful. And so my question is, is it worth it? I mean, if, if, as you're talking about, it all boils down to ratios, is all this other stuff worth it?
1: Uh, On average, people who are more attractive do reap benefits from being attractive. Um, So those people who put the effort into presenting themselves in a more attractive fashion... Um, tend to benefit from a phenomenon known as the halo effect. And the halo effect is this idea that if you're attractive and you have this quality that we consider good, that you must have other good qualities as well. So if people are rating photographs of an attractive person, they tend to rate them as more fun, more intelligent, more dependable, more capable, even though they don't have any information beyond their appearance. So in like elementary school, starting in kindergarten... More attractive children tend to be rated as more hardworking, more intelligent. Teachers call on them more often, and they're not doing this on purpose. It's just their attention gets engaged. Um, They give them more time to answer questions. They give them more opportunities. And by the time those kids get to college, they're more likely to be accepted into college simply based on their appearance, despite scores on SATs or GPA. Um, So there's a lot of these benefits starting really early in our lives that just being naturally attractive, gives you. And this extends into the workforce. Um, In job interviews, more attractive applicants are more likely to be rated as competent and qualified, regardless of their actual skills. And then once they have the job, they're more likely to be given opportunities, rated as more effective, um, given higher salaries, given more raises. So there's a lot of benefits that can radiate just from your physical appearance.
0: I'm speaking with Rochelle Smith. She is an associate professor of psychology at Husson University in Maine, and she's author of the book, The Biology of Beauty. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin-D for years because well, it just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust, into a drive that's all your own. With over hundred and twenty-two million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. So, Rochelle, in addition to the ratios that you talked about... If you wanted to improve your objective beauty, I mean, are there certain parts of the body that you should perhaps focus on more than others? Are there certain things that have more, you know, bang for the buck?
1: Oh, absolutely. Typically, attractiveness correlates with good health. So if you are attempting to be more attractive or you'd like to present yourself in your best light, you should really focus on your health even more than losing weight, Um, which I think is where a lot of people go to, Or building muscle. Uh, Healthy features tend to be rated and correlated with attractiveness. Um, So this means getting adequate amounts of sleep to let your body restore itself, um, engaging in exercise to increase cardiac function to kind of give your skin that healthy glow, um, to eat a balanced diet full of vitamins and nutrients that can give you healthy skin, healthy eyes, muscles, hair, um, drink plenty of water, to get your energy levels up. like There's all these natural methods that a lot of us overlook um, that can make us naturally more attractive.
0: But if, if, for example, you're a guy and you want to improve that or get closer to that ideal shoulder-to-waist ratio, that might mean working out and building up those shoulders and cutting down on that waist.
1: It definitely does, and I think a lot of men do this naturally without even realizing why they're doing it but a lot of men do focus on their upper body and like you always see on online jokes it's like don't let your friend forget leg day because men do tend to focus on the upper body more than their lower body um, because they're just naturally trying to accentuate that feature that women are interested in um, and the same for women. Women tend to do exercises that accentuate their waist and their hips um, and those are the features that, that men are drawn to more.
0: In our culture, in, in Western cultures. There seems, to me anyway, that that attractiveness and sexiness are intertwined. That particularly for women, to be more attractive, to make yourself more attractive, is to make yourself more sexy, to show uh, more skin. Uh, True?
1: I think it might depend on the woman. Uh, Men are attracted to skin. Uh, So the more skin a woman shows, the more attention she might get. Uh, So it's interesting because women might not even be doing it on purpose, that just when they wear the little shorter skirt, they get more attention, and that's reinforcing. So it might kind of drive their behavior, even outside of their conscious awareness, that this behavior draws attention, it kind of gets them what they want, and thus it reinforces that they do it more.
0: But doesn't time also enter into this? I mean, an attractive woman... You could take an attractive woman to, from today and compare her to an attractive woman from 1920, and the looks are different, uh, you know, what, what seems to be accentuated, is di- it's, it's, it's a very different look. But maybe what you're saying is, but underneath it all, it remains the same.
1: Right. It tends to cycle um, throughout generations. So in the 1920s, maybe the, the stick-thin flapper kind of ideal was the trend, and then as you moved into the 50s, it became more the voluptuous, like, hippie, larger breast, Like, there's definitely the ideal changes with generations, uh, but the waist-to-hip ratio doesn't. So if you look at Twiggy, uh, who is a popular model known for her kind of androgynous figure, sure. her waist-to-hip ratio was still lower than the average woman, so she still had that hip-to-ratio um, within that hyper-ideal so, but there has been many features. The ideal changes. So, for example, like the ideal eyebrow. Uh, the ideal eyebrow for women used to be plucked, high, arched, and you can kind of think back to movie stars with their high arched eyebrows. This accentuated their femininity because it separated them from men who tend to have bushier brows. Um, it made them look more innocent, more open-eyed. Um, where today, a thicker brow is in fashion, so it's like the fashion of the eyebrow has changed um, kind of throughout generations.
0: I don't know if this is something you looked at or if this just throws a monkey wrench into the whole conversation, but but are gay couples, are gay people attracted to the same... In other words, is a gay woman looking for the same things in a woman that a heterosexual man is looking for, or is that a whole different discussion?
1: It's a, It's a whole different discussion. However, women tend to look for the same attributes, whether they're looking at a man or looking at a woman. And men tend to look for those same attributes, whether they're looking at a man or looking at a woman. Um, So men do tend to initially be a little preoccupied with physical features. Um, So if they're looking at a woman, they're looking for hyper-feminized traits. If they're interested in men, they're going to look for those hyper-masculinized traits um, in general. And same for women. Women are more interested in personality. They're interested in intimacy. Do we have a connection? Do we have similarities? So regardless of the sex of their partner, they're still going to look for those same traits.
0: And lastly, in the discussion of truly just physical attractiveness and physical beauty, is there a sense of when a woman typically looks at a man or a man at a woman, what are the you know the first few things they notice? Is it is it the hair, the lips, the shoes? I mean, what what is it that quickly grabs attention?
1: I think it, it varies from individual to individual. Most men tend to notice body proportions, body shape. Uh, women tend to look at the eyes. Uh, and the, it was, it's interesting that um, something that I found surprising is bald men are actually rated as more intelligent, more dominant, more masculine, and more attractive. Um, And they think part of that might be because when you look at a man without the hair to distract, the attention goes right to the eyes, and there's that kind of sense of instant chemistry and instant connection. Um, So that's kind of good news if men are concerned about balding. uh, If you just shave it all off, you're rated consistently more attractive.
0: Yeah, because there's a difference between being bald and balding. But, Correct. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah. If you have the comb over, that's not helping you out. If you just
0: <laughs> take that off,
1: uh, so they, they manipulated it on computer, kind of computer pictures. they took the same man and either gave him balding, full head of hair, or totally bald, and the the totally bald man was always rated as more intelligent, or, and more attractive overall.
0: But that's that's a good example of a, a feature that that is a, a deal breaker for for some women who would never go out, at least when they're younger, would never go out with a bald guy, and some women are very attracted to bald guys. So that's a subjective difference that that is, I guess, is just up to the individual.
1: Right, and a lot of this is subjective. Um, A lot of it's based on your personal experience, so people you've had relationships with in the past. If you liked them, then if future people have similar characteristics, you're going to feel naturally drawn to them. If you didn't like them, you're going to feel repulsed. So we bring with us all of this baggage when we encounter new people, and it definitely colors our view of how attractive somebody is.
0: Anything else that surprised you that we haven't talked about besides the baldness thing?
1: Not, not so much surprising, but I don't want this to come across as though I'm telling people that you need to make yourself more attractive. Um, I think that you can use it strategically, and you can know kind of your best features, so you can know how to work that job interview or how you can get people to cooperate with you when you need it. Um, But people who are hyper kind of aware of their own appearance tend to struggle more. They tend to have poor psychological health. They tend to self-objectify and they tend to struggle more with depression and anxiety and self-esteem. So there's something to be said for being too aware. Um, It's better to focus on being healthy and kind of let the rest take care of itself.
0: That's probably some really good advice. Thanks, Rochelle. Rochelle Smith has been my guest. She is an associate professor of psychology at Husson University in Maine and author of the book, The Biology of Beauty. There's a link to the book in the show notes for this episode.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.
0: As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. You don't think about it much, but there are things that you use every day or that you see every day that have had a profound impact on our culture and economy and our lives in ways you probably never knew. Tim Harford has uncovered a bunch of them and has fascinating stories to tell about them. He wrote a book called 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, There's also an accompanying podcast series Tim did with the BBC called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. Hey Tim, welcome. It's great to be back. So of all the things that you looked at that have shaped our economy and in many ways shaped our culture,
2: is there a favorite? Is there one that really stands out? Oh, well, it was fun to discover all of these different ideas, but the one that really fascinated me, I think, was paper. And and the reason that I found paper so fascinating is because it's this bit part player in an, a story that people tell a lot, which is the story of the Gutenberg Press. When I was working on the book and, and on the, the radio series, Fifty Things That Made the Modern Economy, people were saying, Oh, you must um you must write about the, the Gutenberg Press. It revolutionized uh, literacy in Europe, gave us the textbook and the newspaper and all, all sorts of ferocious wars, and it really changed the world. But the Gutenberg Press wouldn't have worked at all without an inexpensive writing surface. And we had things that we could write on animal skin parchments, but they simply weren't economically viable without paper. So paper is this very simple, cheap material that changes the world. And it's often the, the simple, cheap stuff that gets very little attention, but actually it is what really has a profound effect.
0: There's a more modern one on your list that everybody uses somehow every day and I can remember a time when there weren't any and that's barcodes and you know before barcodes there were products just had little stickers with numbers on them and you had to ring them up at the register and really the, the barcode changed everything
2: yeah, I mean, it is a fascinating story. I should say that the idea has been developed independently several times, but the the most famous example, and I think the precursor of the modern barcode, um, it's a, a gentleman called N. Joseph Woodland. And uh, Woodland, uh, shortly after the Second World War, uh, was working at uh, Drexel University, and he was given the task of trying to Im- speed up retail. And um, he went to... Uh, hang out at his grandparents' house uh, by the beach. I think it's down. it was down in Florida. And he, he was sitting on the beach and he was thinking of his time in the Boy Scouts and he dragged his fingers in this big lazy circle through the sand. And he was thinking the Boy Scouts, Morse code. And he looked down and he'd created a sort of bullseye of grooves and ridges. And he realised that you could create that sort of shape and the grooves and the ridges could stand for dots and dashes. You could convey a kind of code. And, and in fact, the original barcodes that he designed were a bullseye, because the idea of the bullseye is where well, you, can, you can scan it from any angle and it, and it looks the same. And that was a brilliant solution, but it really needed much cheaper lasers and much cheaper computers to make it a reality. And that really happened in the 60s and the 70s. The the interesting thing, though, is that even after the technology itself had been perfected, the next stage in the story is a whole bunch of lawyers arguing in meeting rooms for months and months and months. The reason for that is that the big food manufacturers and the big retailers, they all understood that this was a technology that was going to change the game and it would create new winners and losers. Many of the technologies in the book And the podcast series do create new winners and losers. And so they were arguing over the details because different rules would advantage different people.
0: Well, and also there had to be massive buy-in on this.
2: Yeah, it's a huge deal because uh, there was one brewer, for example, that had been printing labels for the beer. I think it may have been um, uh, Miller. Um, they, They were printing labels for their beer and they'd been using the same machine to print the labels since 1912 and these beautiful classic labels and there's no way to print a barcode you need to throw the old machine out and of course all the food manufacturers were saying well we'll print the barcodes when you retailers install the machines and all the retailers were saying well we'll install the machines when you guys print the barcodes so it is a chicken and egg thing but in the end the the lawyers were replaced by the chief executives of all these these big companies and they got the deal done
0: so let's go down the list here and talk about as many as we can in the, in the time we have to talk and discuss them, uh, starting with the razor blade, because I would think, really? Razor
2: blade? Yeah. Well, it's really what the razor blade, the disposable razor blade uh, symbolized. Uh, it, it was invented by an absolutely amazing guy called King Camp Gillette. You can guess which company Gillette founded. And he had all these weird utopian dreams. He was going to set up this enormous city on the, the border of the US and Canada called Metropolis. And the whole population of North America was going to live there in in peace and harmony. And then when that didn't work out, he, he developed the disposable razor blade. But in particular, he developed the pricing model where the uh, the original kit is cheap and then the replacements The replacement blades are expensive. And you see the same thing um, with, say, an Xbox or a PlayStation. Um, It's the games that are really expensive. The kit itself is is almost subsidized. It's priced very competitively. You see it with printers, very expensive printer ink. Um, You see it with hotels where the minibars are expensive. So he developed this pricing model that is now completely ubiquitous. TV
0: dinners. I mean, that TV dinners are huge because without TV dinners, there wouldn't be frozen food and, or, or there wouldn't be the frozen meal. And uh, so where did that come from?
2: Big time savers. So lots of people pointed to the washing machine and said you should cover the washing machine because that saved time. Uh, that was being spent on housework, mostly, of course, by women. And it freed women up to go out and do paid work instead of all this unpaid work in the home. But When I looked at the data, that story is true, but washing machines don't deserve the credit. Because basically what happened is women or whoever was doing the housework, started just doing a lot more laundry. So we got cleaner, but it didn't save time. On the other hand, TV dinners and the whole kind of processing, um, food processing complex, uh, takeaway pizzas, microwavable meals, um, pre-chopped salad, um, cheap fast food, you can go out, all of these things put together, they saved an enormous amount of time in food preparation. Really educated women in the 60s were spending literally hours a day just literally putting food on the table for their families. Once that process was sped up, saved them time, then they could go out and they could earn a living. And and of course, that gave them economic independence. It's a, a big, big difference, a social and economic change caused by this change in the food system. And where did that start? Well, I mean, you could track it all the way back to the 19th century in, in some cases, but um, there was uh, one of the main innovations was uh, a company that had been making ready meals for the army during the Second World War and then the Korean War, and then they started to realize, hmm, maybe there aren't going to be that many more wars and we need to find a different outlet. And so they started perfecting uh, it was it, the I think it was the Betty Crocker food company, if I remember rightly. Um, but they um, they perfected uh, the uh, the, tea, the frozen TV dinner in its sort of space age aluminium tray. Uh, the The particular food scientist who developed it, whose name uh, escapes me, she said. Um, that she would never allow a TV dinner in her own house. She said she spent all day working on these things at the office, and there was no way she was going to uh, have one in her own home. She saw them enough. So you pick
0: one that, that you think is particularly interesting that maybe people wouldn't know, that would think, eh, not so much.
2: Well, you know, one of my favorite ones is concrete, because no one gives concrete the time of day, but this is an invention. It's probably twelve thousand years old. Uh, there, there were early settlements using concrete um, in Turkey. The Romans perfected it, but it really took off um, when a French gardener called Joseph monnier realized that you could put steel inside concrete. He was originally trying to make flower pots out of out of concrete, and that was reinforced concrete. And by a cosmic coincidence, the thermal expansion of steel and the thermal expansion of concrete, the the coefficient of thermal expansion is almost exactly the same, so that when the pair of them heat up, they expand in almost perfect unison, and so it doesn't crack when a building cools down and heats up. Um, so this is, I mean, it's absolutely revolutionary as a, as a material, and it's easily the most used material in the world economy after water.
0: You say that, that paper money is a big deal,
2: that that really was a game changer. So how so? So paper money is an incredible invention. It was originally developed by accident. So there's a, a, the Chinese province of Sichuan, which is now famous for its food, was a border province. This is about a thousand years ago and a little more than a thousand years ago and the chinese emperor said we don't want you using gold or silver coins in sichuan because the gold and silver coins they might kind of be spent and leak across the border and then the barbarians the uh, the tribes that we're afraid of they would they would have the gold and silver so uh, by order of the emperor you are only allowed to use iron coins well now when you think about it iron coins they're not very valuable they're incredibly heavy you might go to market to buy you know, a uh, hundred pounds worth of rice, uh, and you might need to take more than a hundred pounds weight worth of of coins just to buy the rice. It's incredibly bulky. So people started writing each other notes, uh, and, and I might say, well, um, Michael, I. I rather than give you all these coins, which you don't really want, I'll just write you a, um, an IOU. And then when you go to the market, you've got Tim Harford's IOU. So then you might go to a merchant and say, well, look, I, I could write you an IOU for me. Um, but instead of writing you an IOU for me, why don't I just give you Tim Harford's IOU? Because you know we both know Tim Harford. He's good for the money. And that, now my IOU starts passing around from merchant to merchant to merchant without uh, ever being having to be repaid. Everyone accepts that this is good and if anybody ever took it back to me, I, you know, I'd, I'd give them their iron coins. And so it's, it's a remarkably practical system. Of course, the great thing is because I don't ever actually have to repay the money, for me, it's free money. And this is a concept that we call seniorage. And governments pretty quickly, the Chinese government realized, hang on a minute, we should have a piece of that. In fact, we want the monopoly on that. So they banned... Private merchants from issuing paper money and they took it over themselves, but that's where it all came from.
0: Certainly you would expect to see on your list the clock because that certainly has shaped the economy, but what's the story there?
2: It's this story of increasing attempts to standardise the the greater you know the faster the speed that we travel, the more we need an accurate measure of time. So initially, um, the clock, for example, in Exeter, which is in the west of England, was running uh, six minutes behind the clock in London. The clock's in London. And they said, well, this is the, this is the correct time. Actually, it may even be more than six minutes, if I remember rightly. It was, it was quite a bit later. And it was only when the railways started saying, well, we need to get you from London across to Reading, across to Bristol, and then across to Exeter, by which time the entire... the the local time has changed by several minutes. We need to synchronize all of these clocks. So then you have the invention of railway time and clocks that are set to a constant time across the country. Similar development, of course, in the United States. Um, And these days we're trying to synchronize time to the nanosecond with atomic clocks. And it's because our GPS system, the Global Positioning Satellites, uh, that's dependent on a highly accurate measurement of time. If, you've, if your measurement of time is wrong, your GPS system is also going to be wrong.
0: Well, and what you said about the railroads, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, we got to have a standard because if two trains are on the same track because we don't have the same time standard, uh, and they're headed toward each other, uh, that's a
2: problem. Absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, you, you and I, we're we're I think eight hours time difference away. Wouldn't it be? That much more inconvenient if it was eight hours and 11 minutes. I mean, just that it's hard enough to adjust for for the difference in the the hours. But the idea that you might also have to adjust for the minutes as well, it's just too confusing. So in a global world with uh, uh, light speed communications and rapid transport, you need a consistent system.
0: The gramophone is on your list, and and uh, which is the early record player. Uh, but why? Why is that? Why is that so important?
2: Because when think gramophone was introduced, and then replaced by the CD, and then later replaced by downloads. Each time, those technological changes have changed who gets paid to make music. So from a situation where the highest paid singers in the world were people who could fill an opera hall, to the highest paid singers in the world being the people who could shift albums. And now the highest paid singers in the world are the ones who can fill stadiums. The change in the recording technology changes how much you can make as the best paid musician in the world, the 100th best paid musician in the world, the 100,000th best paid musician in the world. And that's tr- that's true of many, many other industries. Change the technology, and even if people's skills and uh, abilities and popularity hasn't changed their ability to turn that into income will change lastly the elevator the elevator is amazing I and mean, elevators don't get enough love i think it's because it's almost like being teleported when you when you get in into and out of an elevator it's it's almost no, it, it, we just take it for granted but when you think about any dense city at all but manhattan is the classic uh, one it, it would be completely inconceivable without the elevator. In fact, there was an elevator operator strike um, in the 1940s that paralyzed Manhattan for a while. Um, and you can imagine how, how that would work. Um, but it's it's a kind of mass transit system, uh, shifts an enormous number of people. It's incredibly safe, but it's also incredibly environmentally efficient because it operates with a counterweight. So you're shifting people from the, the top to the bottom of something like the Empire State Building. Do you imagine chopping the Empire State Building up into one or two storey sections and then setting those sections down in some big suburban uh, office park with lots of parking all around them? Imagine the sprawl of that. You realize the elevator is a, an incredibly efficient mass transit device that's changed the shape of our cities and that we basically completely take for granted. But what was the the big moment?
0: What was it that changed everything?
2: Well, the elevator has existed for thousands of years, but the big invention was uh, Otis. Otis invented not the elevator, but the, the elevator brake. And he, uh, he showed this invention off in a display, a demonstration at one of the world's fairs in the mid-19th century, um, and he was hoisted on a platform high above the crowd. And then he had, just to add to the sense of doom, he had this, this guy with an executioner's axe standing behind him as though he was going to chop his head off, and the the axeman swung the axe down and severed the rope that was supporting the elevator. And everyone in the crowd screamed, and the elevator just juddered a half an inch and then stopped. And Otis yelled out to everybody, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. So he had demonstrated the safety of his his device. And that's what you needed. Nobody is going to get into an elevator unless it's safe.
0: Great. Well, there are plenty other inventions and plenty other stories. If you want to hear them, you can hear them on the podcast series Tim did with the BBC called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. And you can find that on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, I suspect. And the book is called 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, and I've got a link to the book in the show notes for this episode. Hey, thanks for being here, Tim. Brilliant. Great to talk to you. When you're looking for a new job, any little bit of information that will give you an edge is worth knowing. And this is worth knowing. When a company is interviewing people on any given day, the fourth person interviewed is more likely to get the job. Researchers from Old Dominion University analyzed more than 600 30-minute job interviews at a university career center, and they found that the fourth person being interviewed got the most attention from hiring managers. Now, it's become popular belief that employers often make snap judgments about a potential job candidate within the first few seconds of the interview. This study found that decision-making takes closer to five minutes for the first interviewee, and reaches closer to eight minutes by the fourth applicant. After that, the time hiring managers take to reach a decision begins to decrease with each individual interview. Now, I I don't know how you figure out how to become the fourth person interviewed in a day, but if, if there's a way to figure it out and get it done, it's probably worth doing. And that is something you should know. If you found the podcast interesting today, share it with a friend and help us grow and reach more people. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.